Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. Boz Corston and Dania Alarcon both pursued careers in advertising by accident. Corston studied logistics and engineering in college, and Alarcon went to medical school before pivoting to a career in healthcare marketing. But that's what makes them a fit at Wonderman Thompson, which positions itself around combining creativity and technology for brands. Wonderman Thompson Health is a big and growing part of that effort, with nearly 900 employees and more than $200 million in revenue last year, according to MM&M. Corsten and Alarcon talk about recent campaigns and efforts putting Wonderman Thompson at the forefront of equity and inclusion, such as Degrees Inclusive Deodorant for Disabled Communities and the agency's Health for Equity Center of Excellence, which Alarcon started to track and address inequities in healthcare and pharma. I'm Allison Weisbrot, editor of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hello, Danya and Boz. How are you both today? Doing well, thank you. Hi, Allison. Good. Hi, Allison. Nice to see you and talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. So I'm really excited about this conversation because um, we're going to be talking about the intersection of creativity and technology and how that kind of shows up in health. And I have two very um, important and different perspectives on, on all of that. So why don't you both talk about your roles and what you sort of do on a day-to-day at Wonderman Thompson and, and how that either intersects or doesn't intersect. Danya, why don't you start? Sure. So as you know, my name is Danya Larcon. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Winterman Thompson Health. I also have the privilege of co-leading the Health for Equity Center of Excellence at Winterman Thompson. So tell us about that. What is the Health for Equity Center of Excellence? Absolutely. So I joined Winterman Thompson in January of 2020, uh, which, as you know, was quite the year for all of us. And in the middle of... Um, 2020, when we were at the height of the racial injustice, reckoning the global pandemic with COVID and a number of other issues that were occurring in the world, we found this very unique opportunity to help partner with our clients to help them become better partners in driving health equity initiatives. Um, And so part of that involved establishing this center of excellence and helping them with developing action plans and initiatives to help address the glaring health inequities that exist across a range of different therapeutic areas. And this is for pharma clients and healthcare clients? That's right. For pharma, but not exclusively limited to, we also um, are able to champion the wellness initiatives as well. So it's not strictly limited to pharma. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I remember we covered that when it started. So really good stuff. So, Boz, you are the Global Chief Creative Officer. Talk a little bit about sort of what that means, what your remit is, and give us the scoop. (laughs) Well, I don't know if there's any scoops per se, but uh, hi, I'm I'm Boz Corson, as you said. Uh, I'm the Global Chief Creative Officer of Wunderman Thompson. I share that responsibility with Daniel Bonner. He does that out out of London. I work out of Amsterdam. And that means being responsible for the creative output of William Thompson uh, on a global scale. So we, we talk a lot with uh, the creative leaders in the offices about the level and the quality of the work. Uh, we work directly with clients as well. So we have client responsibility trying to inspire our clients to grow. And, and one of the pillars, the important pillars within William Thompson is the health pillar. And that's where I meet Dania. 
Yeah. So let's talk about Wonderman Thompson is like a relatively new agency, right? There was the merger between Wonderman and J. Walter Thompson that happened a few years ago and created this large network that sort of had the vision of using technology and creativity. And then health had always been a big piece of the network as well. So talk about like how that vision has come together over time. Like how do you deliver on that for clients? So I can, I can, uh, I was also listening to your conversation with John Cook a few weeks ago and he spoke about the same uh, thing about two big brands coming together and, and the importance of culture within that. Uh, and, and he's absolutely right. And I think what's interesting about Wunderman and J. Walter Thompson is this notion of inspiration. And that is our guiding principle. It is also very true to the DNA of both uh, companies. I think that's where we found each other. And if you look at the capabilities that, that Wunderman Thompson have, the breadth and the depth of those capabilities, it is quite unparalleled. And I think what's great about inspiration as a guiding principle is that other than creativity, everyone within Wunderman Thompson feels they can be part of that specific notion of inspiration. Not everyone feels that they can be creative, or at least a lot of people say, well, I'm not creative. Well, everyone's to a certain degree creative, but it's in our industry, it's been such a, the name creative has been so loaded. Inspiration, anyone can be inspired on any given day, a data scientist, uh, a commerce expert, uh, especially, I mean, talk about health and inspiration. So inspiration feels like something that is true to a lot of things that we do and that people can get behind when you at William and Thompson. So I think that has helped us a lot in bringing things together and not looking at it as just creative versus commerce versus data. It's, it's all inspiration. And it's one of the most important levers for growth for clients. We've done the research and the math on that. So, uh, so we're really happy yeah. that that's something. That so I know you, you came up through J. Walter Thompson, right? You were there for quite a while. And then I also know that your background is in engineering. So talk about how like you got into creative and how now you're in this place where you're sort of at the nexus of, of both. Yeah. So I, uh, when I was in high school, I really liked writing. I liked language. But my dad was a professor in the English literature and he said, you can do anything, just don't go into literature and, and writing because there's no money to be made there. And that was a time when I still listened to him. And he said, you know what, logistics, that's the, the trade of the future. I was going like, well, got a bit of economics, got a bit of technology, which I was interested in. So I did that. And then I hated it after a first year, but the grades were really good. So I just kept going. I finished it, then went on to a uh, business degree. And within that, I was focusing more and more on marketing. And that's where I came back to my first love, which was writing. I went like, wow, you can do that for brands. And that's how I went from engineering and something highly technical to, uh, to advertising. But at the same time, I still really like technology as a way to create differences for brands uh, and to make technology utterly human. So there's still a bit of that left in the work that I like and that I look for. Well, it also kind of aligns with the work that Wonderman Thompson does, right? Absolutely. And Donya, you've also had a non-traditional career path in the industry. You went to medical school. So how did you make the pivot into advertising? What kind of drew you to this career path? 
not entirely unrelated to Boz's journey here. I have to say one of my biggest joys and uh, moments of creativity in the lab. So I started as a cancer researcher at Mount Sinai Medical School and later did a brief postdoc at Albert Einstein in the Bronx in New York. Um, and during that time and during those studies for cancer research, part of um, the journey involves reporting out your research. So while the papers are a little more dry in nature, I would say, than what we do creatively at the agency, I did have a chance to publish eight different articles, reviews, book chapters, and I found that in that process of storytelling, I really enjoyed the journey of the exploration to the finding to then reporting what that means for the treatment of different cancers. And I think although many of those studies were in the preclinical space, pivoting over into agency life, I think none of us go out and say, we're going to go into the advertising world. I think what ends up happening is you accidentally fall into it. And for me, that happened as a friend saying, talk to this recruiter. She really has this wonderful position in medical direction. And that was 20 years ago, I would say. And and during that time, you know, I can't say I've ever looked back and thought I would do something completely different because I think this is the perfect blend of creativity, storytelling, discovery, and really getting those products out to market in a way that physicians and patients alike are inspired to use them. Yeah. What kind of surprised you like after you went to medical school and were on this path of becoming a doctor? Like what surprised you about the industry? And what you could do with your skill set in the industry? That's a great question. What was, I think, most surprising is finding that right balance of telling a story without going overboard. So I think in publications, it's very technical. And you kind of tell this sort of story that is aligned to all the studies that you're doing, to the experiments that you're doing, what were some of the pitfalls. And very much the same, I would say, in the healthcare advertising space. There are restrictions and regulations, fair balance, but I think at the end of the day, people still connect with a really good story and understand that, you know, they find their um, willingness to use a product in how well that story is told and how different your brand is from others. I think that was probably something I didn't expect, mm-hmm. that it would align very closely to even the way we tell stories in the lab and from experiment to experiment and what you were trying to achieve. It's all very goal and objective focused and really has a deeper level of inspiration. So I think that was a little surprising to me. Cool. So let's talk about how all of this comes together a little bit. I know that Wonderman Thompson won quite a few awards in Cannes this year, but one was for a health-focused campaign, right? That sort of was a good example of how Creativity and technology come together in in the healthcare space, which is being so disruptive right now. So talk a little bit about that campaign and and what went into that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to chat about the smallpox simulator, I think is what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a fantastic campaign and effort. And I think what, you know, to Baz's earlier point, what it really shows us is that at the heart of addressing even health-oriented problems is you know, kind of leaning into that creativity and technology and finding opportunities to sort of showcase how different diseases can impact the world and and the humans within it, right? So I think for the smallpox simulator, um, having this chance to develop something from a technological perspective that could sort of heighten the awareness and tendency for different markets to want to be prepared to treat smallpox should there be an outbreak and understanding the impact of that is something that 
While we did it retrospectively, I would say with COVID, the smallpox simulator allows you to sort of do that in a much more proactive manner. And as something that, you know, was engaging from a point of view that you could have an impact before it actually spirals out of control by understanding what the um, burden of impact would be. And in fact, even today, we find that with this recent monkeypox outbreak, in fact, both smallpox and monkeypox are orthopox viruses, so they belong to kind of the same grouping. Um, and there's a lot that can be learned from this technological advance and development and creative idea and how it might be applied to even other pandemics or outbreaks that we might see. Yeah, which could not be more relevant. Um, <laughs> so talk about, um, is it is it that... Was the, was the intent to sort of give it to physicians and researchers to make it sort of like easier for them to understand? Like, who is, who is the intended audience for the campaign? You can definitely speak to that a little as well. So really, as it can be used as a biological threat, part of the intended audience is definitely physicians that should be prepared, but more so governments and Department of Defense bodies that should be prepared should it be used as a biological weapon or threat. And while there's been outbreaks in the past, it's very much been controlled by efforts from a Department of Health level perspective in different countries. And I think the intent of this was just to make sure that those bodies that are in charge of sort of regulating and preparing their populations would be kind of understanding what the size of the threat might be. Yeah, and I think to add to that, I think, so if you think about inspiration, inspiration will always lead to action. You can't be inspired and do nothing. And in this case, we needed people to act because governments, they think they are prepared for an outbreak like this because they feel like smallpox means something from the past, has been eradicated. But to actually feel that there is a, a big threat and to get people to act on that is something that you need to, that's what we do is we use inspiration to get people to come into action. And in this case, that was very necessary because people don't know they have a problem. So that, that's what we did. Yeah. And who is, was this more of like a, like a PSA or was there a client behind it? So there is a client that has a product to um, treat smallpox that we're engaged with. I'm not sure how much we're allowed to share or not, but, but definitely in partnership with and uh, inspired for how they might utilize this resource and simulator to help prompt mm -hmm. use and stocking in the appropriate countries depending on threats. Yeah, I feel like there's so much happening in the healthcare space right now just with like technology and, and all these different ways that the space is being disrupted. Like what other interesting sort of tech-driven projects are you working on with clients that, that you can talk about? I mean, in general? I mean, tech in general? No, within the health, in the health space. space. Sorry. Well, I think Danya can, can answer that better. Sure, absolutely. I thought we were going to go to uh, the <laughs> the Sherwin Williams case, but um, yeah, oh, we will, <laughs> we will. I was like <laughs> looking at Boz. Boz is looking at me. Um, okay, so I think uh, for us, in terms of tech, one of the main focuses, especially going back to kind of some of the campaigns and health equity, although not a can, but in other award shows, has been recognized as finalists including MMM and Fierce Pharma, is We Love You to Health, which was intended to um, really amplify awareness and voices of Black mothers and mothers-to-be and to help connect them to community care resources. So 
in terms of the tech connection here, it's really about creating those avenues or pathways to um, connecting mm-hmm. to community care consultants such as doulas um, that are language, uh, race, and culturally concordant in their local zip codes. And there's actually a site that we partnered with called doulamatch.net, which is able to sort of bring that down to the zip code level and help Black mothers and, and mothers-to-be to connect to people that they feel comfortable supporting them in this journey, especially given you know, the black maternal health crisis that we're in and the size of the impact and mortality rates in different countries. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And I feel like, you know, so much of the work that you do across Wonderman Thompson and in health specifically is like, you know, inclusion driven and sort of equity driven. Um, talk a little bit about that and, you know, how you're thinking about that in, in, in the different campaigns that you do. Absolutely. So I can start and Boz, please feel free to uh, jump in. So from an inclusivity perspective, we have a pretty robust uh, four-step process that hones in on different intersectional populations and really helps to identify what are those health and equity challenges that need to be most addressed in order to have an impact on the most marginalized of audiences. And, you know, one of the things that I think we all kind of um, in unison hold hands and say together is that we should do this not for us without us. And so as part of this development and process, we make sure that we include the audiences that we're targeting from the point of understanding the deeper insights that might inform our creative efforts to development of those creative efforts, to validating what the idea is on the back end. So all throughout the process, you have representation and inclusion of the populations we're trying to serve. And that includes, you know, intersections across race, ethnicity, ability levels, socioeconomic status, and other factors as well. Yeah, I I think, I mean, as as WPP, which is also WT's purpose, is to build better futures for our people, our clients, our communities, and our planet. And there's so much inequity in the world that whenever we get a chance, and I think, for instance, if you think about degree inclusive, is the inclusive deodorant for Unilever that we created. If you see how that inspires so many new inclusive design thinking with other brands, we feel that um, the health and equity work that Damian and team are doing will have a similar effect and will inspire so much change. And it just it just it just feels right, and, I, and and it also feels easy for the company to really get behind and rally with the clients and the brands that we work for to make a fundamental change. So I'm I'm really proud uh, that we're doing that company. Yeah, yeah. The degree inclusive work was so great, and like I think it really started a, sparked a conversation in the industry around disability. Do you feel like that's become a little bit more of a bigger topic that people are paying attention to um, in terms of their employee populations, of consumers, inclusive design? Obviously, there's still work to do, but how do you think the conversation has progressed? No, I, I definitely feel that brands are thinking more openly when it comes to audiences. I mean, if you think about one in every five people in the world have some form of disability and even all of us here on the call, we will experience some kind of disability in our lives at some point. So loss of hearing, loss of dexterity. So if you think about the business implications of that group and and the enormous opportunity that brands have in catering, I, I feel we're not even scratching the surface. Also within representation, 
but also in, in coming up with fundamental solutions in, in hiring processes, uh, people with um, disabilities. So it feels like there's a lot of work to be done. But to your point, it does feel like something has been set in motion. But for us, it can't go fast enough. Yeah. How do you get clients to buy into these things? Like, obviously, they know they have to, right? They know that it's good business to be inclusive and, you know, pay attention to diversity and, and representation and all of these things. It's, it's necessary now. But, you know, with a, with a client like Unilever, they're very, uh, they lead on these types of initiatives. But how do you sort of, how do those conversations with clients go when, when you pitch some of these ideas? Well, I think, so sorry, Daniel, I'll, I'll just quickly uh, uh, say something about how the conversation with Unilever went, because I think that's the way it should go. Um, degree has a purpose, which is to inspire confidence in everyone to move more. And, and everyone is a word that we use quite carelessly, because if you, can't, if you have people that can't open a deodorant spray, I mean, so going back to the purpose that we stand for, and then looking at it and go like, well, is it actually like you say, for everyone or for that large group that you're saying that you're for. So I, I feel that going back to the why of the company and then saying, okay, well, open it up to everyone that should be included in this, which is truly everyone, is, is I think it's a good starting point because clients will always go like, well, I've never thought of that when I wrote the line, have a break, have a Kit Kat, that people, that there are people in the world that can't open the pack. They just, they don't have the dexterity to open the, so, it is always a good starting point to go back to, to the core of, of the company and then and then have that conversation for done. No, I couldn't agree more, Boz, and I love that you started at the point where what ideal looks like and then know that there is ranges and a continuum there. So I think um, on the health side, very similarly, there's going to be clients that are ahead of the curve and that are equity-driven and purpose-driven and have it even embedded into their core values and how they operate as an organization. Whereas others might do it more on a check the box perspective and others who are really far behind and maybe haven't even brought um, the equity considerations into the conversation for their underserved populations. So I think the approach, depending on where the client is in that continuum, doesn't vary all that much. I think it always starts with the human case. What is the human case for what you're trying to achieve and why you need to include these audiences? But I think for those that are uh, a little further behind on that continuum, they always need to see the business case or rationale as well, which includes, you know, understanding what source of business they might be missing as a result of not having people represented in their campaigns or in their efforts or in their trials that are reflective of the broader population that continues to grow. Right, especially in certain segments, and racial segments being one of them. So I think in that uh, regard, like things like the WPP anti-racism commitments are especially critical in the sense that they're able to um, provide dedicated, purposeful efforts to help be more inclusive and have um, you know kind of actionable efforts and initiatives that are really focused on the population that's been furthest left behind. So you know, to Baz's point, I think. Whether it's the disability level or continuum or a racial underserved population or other intersectional populations that might be even further left behind or neglected in different campaigns or efforts, I think it's really important for us to be more intentional about building very compelling human and business cases so that our clients are compelled to you know, really focus on these different segments. 
Yeah, 100%. And I think now, especially we're faced with brands have to not only represent so many different groups of people, but they're in the thick of political changes, changes happening in our country, overturning of Roe v. Wade. How are you, especially Danya, in your position, helping clients navigate these changes? And then also, I know you're an activist as well yourself. You created the Health for Equity movement. Like, How are you getting involved? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really about, you know, making sure that our clients are as inspired as we are to continue to champion efforts for underserved communities. So I would say being in the moment and part of the actual conversation and having a point of view, a strong point of view, not one that's kind of, you know, half measures um, around topics that are happening, like leaning into reproductive access to health, whether that means supporting you on your birthing journey, or it means having access to abortion care services. Either one of those is critically important to the health of the mother. And it might be that there are different points of that continuum. So I think having policies from a company-wide level, WPP was one of the first to really provide travel services um, to access abortion care in the U.S. on the heels of the Roe v. Wade decision. And I think beyond that, our clients, too, have been really great partners in understanding how they, too, can play a role in this, um, whether it's from their company's perspectives or from the efforts and initiatives that they're investing and championing for the health of underserved communities. And I think it's just a matter of making sure that we're part of the conversation and that the steps that we're taking are actually making an impact um, for those that are, are stand to, you know, be at the worst place in terms of outcomes, especially from, you know, recent things like reproductive health. Yeah. And I know this isn't just a health, a health issue, right? All brands have to be paying attention right. to this issue. So, Boz, I'm curious your perspective here. Well, I think it's a fine balance because it needs to feel like it's, it's coming from the brand and from a, a, a natural and legitimate place. From, from the DNA of the brand for you to get involved in societal issues because before you know it, it comes across as tokenism and just tagging along to something just because that's what's on people's minds. So, so it needs to feel true. It needs to feel fundamental. And I love uh, having been part of, of the most recent uh, Dove efforts on the, the, the Crown Act, for instance. That started in 2016, uh, I believe, and now that inflation has passed in 19 states in the U.S., uh, which is all about race-based hair discrimination. And I think that's when you feel like a brand is really invested in something. And, and of course, Dove has a, uh, a very rich heritage when it comes to standing up for what real beauty is. But I think as long as it feels like brand has a natural and legitimate reason and voice to be there, I think is, it is, uh, necessary because governments withdraw on some kind, some territories and terrains and then it's, it's natural for brands to step in there. Again, if they do it for the right reasons, then, uh, more power to them. Mm. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about the state of creativity right now and, a couple of months ago, we were in Cannes, and I know Wonderman, like we said before, won a few awards. What did you think, Boz, of like the work overall at the festival, and where do you think like creativity is at right now in the industry? Are people inspired, or because to me, it sort of felt like there wasn't one standout campaign that everybody was talking about. No, I mean, and, and, and I mean, Cannes in that sense. I mean, it's, it's a good reflection of 
of where we are, but also sometimes that just happens. But I do think that if you think about COVID and the situation that we're coming out of, I think we were really happy with the way that we dealt with it because we got work out and, and pretty decent work as well. But if you think about what a creative brain needs, it's not sitting behind the screen in your bedroom for eight hours a day. It needs you to interact with people. It needs you to be in nature. It needs you to, to be truly creative. So I feel that what we've seen this year is still a reflection of us coming out of the pandemic. And our creative brains, I think, will be much more energized and relieved in the next year, to be honest. So I do feel that we're at the beginning of something interesting, even though the economic times might be challenging uh, ahead. But I, I do feel that creativity, once we start meeting each other again, will become more exciting again. Do you feel like the tough economy is is uh, going to stifle creativity or, or the appetite to invest in creativity? Well, usually it does. I mean, not from a, I mean, a creative brain doesn't mind doesn't mind necessarily being in a crisis because then the brain gets really creative. The only thing is the business that you, you do it for, if it's under stress, there's less appetite for risk and less appetite for over-investing. So from that perspective, it's not great. But from a how does creativity work in your brain and, and how I, I don't feel that the um, the crisis is going to be negative to that person. Well, it's not like there was no creativity in the pandemic. Um, I know there was a few really cool campaigns you did. Talk about the, the Sherwin-Williams campaign. Yeah, so I think what is interesting about the Sherwin-Williams uh, campaign, and it comes back to inspiration and to making technology human, is a campaign that we did for Sherwin-Williams coil coatings uh, in the U.S. And what we did was we created an app that allows you to and I say you, but in this case, this is about architects specifically, to, through voice, reach a color that you would normally not be able to reach in the existing processes. So usually you go to uh, a paint company and they give you swaths and then you go elephant gray, mouse gray, they dictate the colors. And there are about 50,000 that you can choose from. But then the human eye can detect a million different ones. So what if you could use things that inspire you and use them to describe the color that you like, that you want, and have a, a, a voice app that allows you to get and land on that one very unique, specific color, that one in a million color. And that's that's the app that we built, and that's what we won the uh, the first ever Grand Prix for, B2B for in Canada this year. What was one of your best colors that was like, the, the best names that came out? Well, it's interesting. So why I like this so much, because you can instantly see the consumer uh, application for this. But why I like this so much is I like holding those. Now, don't judge. It's just, it's just from when I was young. And they, have, they made a, an album in the 80s. And there's an album cover that I really like. It has very specific colors. So you can actually go to that album cover and really drill down deep into the album cover, choose the color that you like, tailor it, and then put it on your wall. But think about how different that is if I know that that color is inspired by that album that I love from the band that I love versus Mouse yeah. Gray or Eggshell 
off white. Yeah, it's more personal. It, it is so much more personal, it's, and so I really feel that this this could be something again where degree inclusive inspired inclusive design for lots of different brands. I think this idea could inspire how to use voice in, in complex decision making processes. It doesn't it doesn't uh, have to be confined to paint to choosing paint. There are so many things that you could choose in this way which would give the power to you as a consumer versus the power to the maker or the producer. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very excited about this idea. Awesome. Danya, I'd love to hear from you how creativity is changing in healthcare. I know for a while, pharma ads were all 60 seconds on cable TV. There's been a format that they've been stuck in for a long time, but now there's all this inclusive design thinking, technology. How do you see creativity being elevated in the health space. So I, I'm very much of a similar mindset that the more constrained you are, there's actually a book um, by Morgan and Barton around um, a beautiful constraint. So it's the more restrictions you have, the more creative you need to be. And I love the book because a lot of the cases in there speak to exactly what COVID did to us. It kind of restricted us, yet it challenged healthcare especially to think about ways to engage in your health that not only encompass the in-person, in-office experience, whether it's reps going into a doctor's office and having that like rushed 30-second conversation, but also in the virtual space. So how do we make experiences more engaging and more um, driven by the voice of the patient and the needs of the patient, wherever they might be in that continuum and whether or not they're restricted or in the office themselves. So I think for health, what it's really done is expanded the 360 experience for both the patient and the doctor and the reps from different companies and pharma to really think about all the different ways in which they might engage and elevate that experience and make it more holistic. For example, I was just at ASCO, one of the largest oncology meetings in June, um, typically a meeting that's attended by 30 to 40,000, but they never really had like a huge virtual presence until you were done with the whole meeting. This year, they had over 30,000 in attendance in the McCormick Center at Chicago and an additional 11,500 or more participants virtually throughout the conference, which I think is really a new experience for larger engagements and spaces is to really think about how you bring a comprehensive experience regardless of location. And I think that also benefits a lot of maybe other communities where they might not have had the chance to participate, you know, around being in person at the Congress. Yeah, for sure. There's virtual, there's hybrid, there's so much changing about the way health is approached and the way business in general. So thank you both for being here chatting with me about creativity and health and technology and hope to see you both in person soon. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Allison. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Campaign Chemistry on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.